Well, many moons ago, uh, my brother graduated from Aggie Land, and um, he made the mistake of moving to Austin. I don't know why Aggies moved to Austin. He took a job, actually a good job, at a church, and he and his wife were Aggies and moved to this place. And a couple years in, he gave me a call and said, hey, I need you to come uh, play in this charity golf tournament with me in Austin. And um, it's on this date and this time, and, but it's a little different. Um, we're going to be not only playing 18 holes for this charity event, and this was an event that, that benefited the pregnancy center that this, their church supported. And so I looked at the dates, but he said, listen, this is an all-day thing. This is a marathon outing, and that was like 15 years ago, so my body could handle it. So we played, the, the goal was to play a marathon golf event, and the more holes we played, the more we raised for this crisis pregnancy center. And so I got my gear together and drove from Houston to Austin, and before I did, I looked at the weather, which you always do if you're a golfer, and it was, the, the whole day was calling for rain, and it rained on me all the way to Austin. I got there, and it was raining, and for some crazy reason, River Place Country Club on the west side of Austin decided they were going to let us play. I don't know if they paid them more money for let about 100 people play on this deal, but we had our rain gear on, and we played golf all day for charity. Um... The problem was, is when we finished, my brother looked around and couldn't find his Aggie Colt ring that Aggies have that are so important to them. And so we searched his golf bag and my golf bag and the cart barn and everywhere in Austin, Texas for his Aggie ring. And we pretty much determined that somewhere during the day on the golf course where it was raining all day that he lost his Aggie ring. And so for... The next two years, about once a month, he would call the pro shop at this country club and he would ask, has anybody turned this ring in? Has anybody found it at the golf course? And I just reminded him that he was in Austin and nobody was turning an Aggie ring in in Austin. And he, told, he called me about ten years later and he said, you will never believe what happened. I got a call from River Place Country Club ten years after I lost my Aggie ring and a guy said, a pro at the pro shop said, you know, I've been looking at this ring in the cash register for about six months and I'm an Aggie and so I looked you up in the Aggie directory and found you online and got you this ring. My brother dropped everything as a cultish Aggie that he is and he went to Riverside Country Club and he bought that guy lunch and they celebrated him finding his Aggie ring. We've all lost something of value to us. Think about something of value that you've lost. And the search and recovery and celebration that would ensue if you found what was valuable to you would be like it was for my brother. But since really Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve plunged themselves into sin, we've been lost as a human race. And God has been, the story of the Bible is that God has been on this rescue and recovery mission to redeem sinners like you and like me. So how does God restore? How does God redeem? How does he find what is lost to him? Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke is in the New Testament. There's some Bibles on the end of your road. Luke 15 and we'll be this morning in verses 1 through 10. We're kind of between series. We finished the book of Habakkuk. And Brent talked last, need about, last week about truth and what it is. And we're about to start a series for the sermon in the Gospel of John. And specifically looking at who Jesus says that he is. The I am's of Jesus. The seven I am's of Jesus through the summer. But before then, I want you to see Jesus' heart. I want you to see Jesus' heart this morning for the lost. 
and how he rescues that which is lost to him and how he redeems that which is lost to him. Luke 15, 1 through 10. And really, this chapter is a parable. There's three stories in the parable. We'll take primarily the first two, the the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And maybe you can look forward and know the climactic story of the prodigal son, which rounds out the third story in the parable. But what you're going to see this morning is loss. Loss, search, recovery, celebration. And you're going to see God's heart for the loss and the means by which the loss can be found. So I want to show you three really incredible truths about God and how he relates to us. Let me read it. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Look along as I read. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost, until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You can hear the sarcasm in Jesus' voice. And then verse 8 about the lost coin. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so what's God's heart for the lost? And what's the means by which they can be found, that we can be found? Here's your first idea this morning. And it's an important one. It's an important one if you stand here not knowing the Lord, not knowing Christ. But it's also an important one if you do know Christ. It's this, Jesus gladly welcomes, he gladly welcomes and seeks out lost sinners like you and me. If you look at verse 2, look back with me at verse 2, it says this man, the Pharisees are really the reason this parable is happening because they're the ones grumbling and complaining. They're the ones chasing Jesus down and saying, well, he's loving on people that are outcast. And what, is, what do they say about him? He receives. Do you know that word in the original language isn't just, hey, if If lost sinners and tax collectors and sinners come to me, then I will receive them. That's not the implication of the word. The the word in the original text and the original meaning of receive means to gladly welcome. Do you get that? That Jesus gladly welcomes. And who does he welcome? He welcomes sinners. These are people who are immoral in that day. That's what the phrase means. Tax collectors were the people that were despised, and they were actually considered the worst of sinners because they were turncoat Jews who took money from Jews. They were employed by Rome and took money from Jews. And they were considered the least, the worst of the worst, and yet they're the people that are drawing near to Jesus. And Jesus is gladly receiving them. And notice in the parable, because parables are meant to do something, meant to teach us truth. So Jesus is addressing and looking toward the Pharisees when he gives these two parables. 
And what does he say? What does he say about the lost sheep? He says he will go, verse, where is it? Verse 4, look at what it says. And if there's one lost sheep, I will go after. What shepherd wouldn't go after one lost sheep? And then if you come down to the coin, if she loses the coin, she sweeps it, the house diligently. So not only just Jesus welcome gladly lost sinners who come to him, he seeks them out. It's interesting when you look at the lost sheep. They live in this agrarian society, so the example that Jesus uses would be understandable. If you're a shepherd listening to this, you're like, yeah, if I'm a shepherd, I'm going to go find that sheep. If I've lost a coin, I don't know if you, you realize this, but in homes in that day, there were dirt floors, and at night they lit candles. They didn't have electricity. And so they lit candles, and so this coin, these coins have fallen. That's a day's worth of wages is a lot of money. So this woman in the dark is taking a candle and finding this valuable coin. I grew up on a cattle ranch. I didn't grow up with sheep, praise God. I don't, I don't really like sheep. They're pretty nasty. We grew up with cattle. We had a lot of cattle, and my dad and I would go and feed the cattle in the afternoons, especially in the winter. It was like a daily chore. And mom and my two brothers were at home when they were little, and mom would be making dinner. This is before cell phones, all right? And so we'd go out and feed the cows, and dad would get the cubes, we'd get the hay, and all the cows would come, and surely we needed to feed them food in the winter, but there was something else going on. My dad would count the cows. And he would look at me and he would say, all right, I want you to count as well. As I count, you count. And if we didn't both come up with the, the right number of cows and calves that were there, then we had to count again. And if there was one missing, he would take out his little notebook that had all the tagged numbers of the cattle. And we would go through all the cattle as they were eating and make sure, okay, which one is lost? What number is lost? And if we couldn't find it, I didn't get dinner. You know why I didn't get dinner? At least till later. It ruined my evening because we went out and found that lost calf or lost heifer or lost steer or bull, usually. We went out to find it, and I didn't get to eat dinner until we did. We searched. That was the most important cow that day was because it was lost, and we would not stop until we found it. Because we didn't know what would happen. We didn't know if the coyotes came. We didn't know if mom was having a baby. We didn't know if the bull had gotten out. And we would come home, and mom would have two plates there because she already knew that we had to seek out the lost calf or the lost cow. And this is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying it to his disciples, but he's saying it to the Pharisees. That I care about the least of these. I care about the lost and I will find them, and I will seek them out. Jesus gladly welcomes and even seeks out lost sinners. Listen, we don't really have a problem when we come to Scripture and the Gospels and we see Jesus making a beeline to the least of these. You know, the person that didn't deserve it. You know, the, the person who was sick and it wasn't their fault. The widow, the orphan, the New Testament would say. People who have a certain plight and it wasn't their fault. The child the lame, the sick. But notice in this passage and many others, Jesus doesn't just make a beeline to the least of these. He makes a beeline to the worst of these. Do you see it? The worst of these. 
the adulterer, the addicted, the fraudulent. That's what a tax collector was. He was a fraud. In today's world, the felon. These are the people in which Jesus loved. I got no problem giving financial support and money and time to the least of these. I don't know about you. That's easy. It's easy to go. We want to help these people in need. But what about the person who has earned it? What about the person who has made so many mistakes and had right and good consequences because of those mistakes that the world gives them as well as God's moral law gives them? Those are right and good. But what about the worst of these? What is our posture toward the worst of these? Do you see Jesus' posture toward the worst of these? It's come to me. Those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the worst of these often understand their need for Jesus. In ways that you and I often don't. If you went to Market Street down here and you started telling people about Jesus, and this isn't this is just a stereotype, this isn't all true. But if you you got ten people that you told about Jesus and their need for Jesus, they might say, Thank you, I'm good. Maybe they don't. But I promise you, if you go to the prison and you go minister to people in the prison, they know their need. You go to the east side. With under over fellowship on Friday nights, how's that for a plug? People know their need. They see their need. And so Jesus, we've got to come to terms with this. There's passages in the scripture where Jesus moves toward people that we might never ever move toward. But Jesus gladly welcomes and even seeks out lost sinners. And from God's spiritual vantage point, From his spiritual vantage point, do you think there's a scorecard that you have that's different than the tax collector? Not really. Not really. There may be more consequence in that person's life, the felon's life, and the addicted's life, and the adulterer's life. And yet God doesn't see the scorecard that way. And this is what we learn. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God loves and seeks out the lost sinner like you? And like me. I've known Jesus for 20 something years. And I think the the longer that I walk with him. For whatever reason. I think it's probably just my flesh. I get what I call spiritual amnesia. About how God sees me. Now that I've walked with Jesus for 20 something years. That I'm a pastor. Whoop de doo. And I forget where I came from. I forget the deep sin in which separated me from God, that separated you from God. But God welcomes. God welcomes and seeks out lost sinners. And we're going to get to how he does that in a little bit. But aren't you glad? But perhaps this morning you're here and you go, you know what? There's a lot of stuff in my life that I look at and go, God could never, ever forgive me. He could never welcomely, gladly welcome me. If he knew what I've done, well, he does. The beauty and the depth of the gospel, the good news of Christ is this. But God demonstrates his love toward us that while... Not after we cleaned ourselves up. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When I was 20 years old, I grew up in the church. A lot of you kids are growing up in the church. You're hearing truth. 
I could tell you the gospel when I was 20 years old in my method, and I became the prodigal son after I left the house. And my strategy for making it right with God is to clean myself up. And I remember coming to this passage in Romans 5 that I just said to you, but God demonstrates his love toward us, that while, the words while leapt off the page. Yet, he died for me. You can't clean yourself up enough to be made right with God. He does that through his son, Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. He can take the least of these, he can take the best of these, and he can take the worst of these and redeem them. Do you know that truth? So surely this parable teaches us that while Jesus seeks out lost sinners, it also shows us what he doesn't tolerate. Do you see it here? You see it in the Gospels, what Jesus doesn't tolerate. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Look at verse 7 and the sarcasm from Jesus in verse 7. He will go after the one over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Don't mistake this. These people were not righteous. They were righteous in their own eyes, but they were not righteous before God. They were self-righteous, and this is your point. Jesus and the self-righteous don't mix. Jesus and the self-righteous don't mix. You see it all the way through the Gospels. See, if you're not aware of your need, your need for forgiveness, and you think you can clean yourself up like the Pharisees could before God, there's no room there for him. There's there's no room. So the self-righteous and Jesus don't mix There's a couple of places in Scripture where you see this. In Luke chapter 5, I think we have the text here. You can look above or you can turn a few pages back. In Luke chapter 5, you see Levi. Levi is the disciple we know as Matthew. And verse 27 says this in Luke chapter 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector. Remember, despised, lowest of the low, lowest of all sinners, named Levi. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. Verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house. Do you notice how when people who know their need for Jesus, and the worst of these, when you see yourself that way, that what you see in the New Testament with the celebration of being forgiven because you know the depth of your own sin, this is what you frequently see. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company, guess of who? He brought other tax collectors, and other reclining at the table, so they're having fellowship with them. And what did the Pharisees do? The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, again, same deal. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, feel the sarcasm again. Those who are well, like you, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, so-called righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, if you don't think you have a need for Jesus, there's nothing there for you. What's more interesting is this. The religious leaders of Israel, way back in the day, before the Pharisees, had the same problem. The shepherds of Israel had the same problem. And I want you to see it. Ezekiel chapter 34 This is God speaking and and basically rebuking the shepherds of Israel. And then he's going to tell you what he's going to do about it. 
Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Check this out. The weak you have not strengthened, the least of these. The sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. And here it is. Here's the worst of these. The strayed you have not, what are the words? Brought back. You've not brought back. You even think it is godly Pharisee. Old Testament leader, you think it's godly to push them further away. You think you're honoring God by doing that. Same with the Pharisees. The lost, see it? The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Fast forward to verse 22 through 24 because there's just more judgment that God talks about with the shepherds of Israel who are supposed to be feeding the sheep, caring for the sheep, bringing the lost back, the worst of these back, and being shepherds. But look at what God does. Verse 22, I will rescue my flock. If you won't, I will. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So he's looking forward to King David as the one shepherd. But that looks forward to the one King Jesus who is the great shepherd. This is prophetic of what Jesus would do, and that's exactly what we see in this passage. We see the Pharisees and the leaders not caring for the lost, not bringing back the strayed. And Jesus says, I'll do it. He's the great shepherd. See, when Jesus seeks out the lost, there is, there's no room for those who think they are found. But here's the interesting thing. And I think we have to address this in the world that we live in. Surely this text, when we think about self-righteousness, surely this text is about the religious self-righteous, right? So the Pharisees that carry out all these rules and look down on people who don't, and they have these all these requirements for people not to do this and to do that. And so surely there is a religious self-righteous. And we can fall into that category oftentimes as well. But there's a different kind of self-righteousness as well. It's not religious. It's, I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the master of my own fate. I've got this. It's not a religious self-righteousness, but it is a self-righteousness. And what's often interesting is the religious self-righteous look at the secular self-righteous and say, ooh, you're really bad. And the secular self-righteous that are the captain of their own ship look at the religious and say, you're just using a crutch. But the reality is, is that everyone falls short. Whether you're religiously self-righteous or you're just self-righteous in and of yourself and you're saying, I'm the captain of my own ship, that's self-righteousness. And none of that merits any favor with God. Neither one of it. Only what Christ has done. See, the gospel is good news only if you understand that the bad news is so bad, that your sin separates you from God. And there's no amount of religious stuff or self-help stuff that you can do 
to make yourself right with him. Maybe you remember, maybe you remember Aristotle. You remember the, the phrase that he coined, the tragic hero, way back in the day and often applied it to Greek mythology. If you know some of the stories of Greek mythology, maybe some of you um, classical school kids maybe know some Greek mythology or well-studied folks. Icarus, remember Icarus? His father gave him wings, wax wings, but he told his son, I'll give you wings, but if you go too low, then those wings, those wax wings will catch the water and they will fall off. And if you go too high, you will hit the sun and the sun will melt your wax wings. And Icarus enjoyed his wings for a long time and he spread his wings for a long time, but he got pretty prideful. He thought he had overconfidence, which is one of the marks of the tragic hero from noble birth and incredible talent. But his fatal flaw was his hubris, his excessive pride, his overconfidence to think that it's not going to happen to my wings. And he goes up near the sun and his wings melt. And he falls into the sea and he drowns and he dies. We've got first and fifth graders here today, so maybe you don't know Icarus. So let me give you a different example. Beauty and the Beast. The tragic hero in Beauty and the Beast. You remember Gaston? Beauty and the Beast kids? Gaston was handsome and strong. And he killed all kinds of things. And then the beast comes on the scene. And they take the torches. And they think they're going to take down the beast. But Gaston had a little overconfidence problem, didn't he? He was a little bit full of himself. And he meets the beast. And he doesn't make it. The beast takes him out. But here's the interesting thing of the story. If you just think about the story a little bit. Who was the real beast in the story? Was it the beast who was externally the beast? Or was it Gaston who had the beast-like heart? The heart full of pride and hubris. The tragic hero. I often wonder if that's where my heart is. Is my heart filled with hubris and pride? See, that's not very moldable to God. What form does it take in your life? Is there a pride there in your life that you need to confess to and repent? And maybe you don't know Jesus and you're saying here this morning saying, I got this. And Jesus has no place for the self-righteous. But here's the thing. Jesus surely seeks after the lost sinner. And the worst of these, and self-righteousness doesn't mix with Jesus. But what is it about the worst of these, or the outcast, what is it about them that, that Jesus seeks? I don't think it's just because that they're that lost and they've done a lot of bad, or that they're the least of these. I don't think that's the motivator here, nor anywhere in Scripture. I think the motivator here is actually the response. You see, your, next, your last thought is this. God rejoices. He rejoices over lost sinners who repent. That's a big churchy word, repent. What does it mean? I mean, you, you, you see it a couple of times here. You see it in verse 7. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven, God rejoicing, 
We often think of us rejoicing. We need to rejoice in trial. We need to rejoice in God and who he is. But here God is rejoicing. It's like Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. That he's glad over his people who love him and follow him. And why? 99 righteous persons to those who need no repentance. Look at um, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10. When she found it. She calls together friends, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the angels over one sinner who, what? Repents. It's a big churchy word. What does it mean? Let me try to explain it by illustrating it first. Um, like most male drivers in the room, when you get in a car, um, I, you never ask for directions. I don't ask for directions. I know where I'm going. I am never lost. How about you? Ladies, is this true about your husbands? I'm never lost. Now, if there's a misstep, then I just get back on track. But I'm never lost. I don't believe that. I mean, maybe it's just a part of the, the problem with men. I don't ask for help. I never ask for help. And if my GPS doesn't work, I'm definitely not getting out of the car and going in somewhere and asking anybody for help. Because I'm not lost. I'm going to figure it out. But listen, if I try to live that way spiritually before God, and I don't turn around. I don't turn around and go in the right direction. That's what repentance is. It's going one way, going my own way, pursuing my own way, and turning around and pursuing his way. I have to turn away from my sin and turn to Christ. That's repentance. And that's what's going on with the lost sinner, the worst of these in this passage. They know their need for Jesus, and they seek him out, and they turn from their way and turn to Christ, my own confidence, going my own way, figuring it out, that's when you're truly lost. So have you turned around? And are you turning around still? So there's really two thoughts here. One about salvation, where you come to a place where you realize that there's nothing that you can bring to God to earn merit or righteousness, as this text would say, with him, and you turn to Christ because righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. That's what we're saying. So there's that. And then there's living out this life. And if you know Christ here this morning, if you know him, is that the kind of life you're trying to live? A life of continual confession and continual repentance. Is it a way of life for you? Is this the message that you share with people? That Jesus has died in our place? Is it the posture you take with a not yet believer? Or do you look at not yet believers and say it's us versus them? See, the book of Titus would say you once were. You once were lost and Christ found you. See, repentance starts with God because God's kindness. That's what Romans chapter 2 tells us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not just, I repented and so now God is not going to be wrathful at me and now my repentance is going to bring out God's kindness. No, 
God's kindness. This is who he is. This is his character that he is kind. And because he is kind and merciful to the lost sinner, it leads us to repentance. See, repentance starts in the heart of God. And it moves this Holy Spirit into our lives. And we yield to it and we turn from our sin. But I want to press a little further into repentance because I think many of us, I'm about to kick that over. Kicked it about four times. Many of us get this idea of turning from our sin and and trusting in Christ. But it's something that God wants from us. It's really an act of wisdom each and every day. And just take your spouse for a minute. In relational reconciliation. Think about people in your life that you're not right with. Or they're not right with you. We often love to apply this to our own lives and, and receive this from God. But we won't extend it to somebody else. Can I tell you what repentance and confession isn't? It's not, hey, if I hurt your feelings, then I'm sorry. It's not, I didn't mean to. I was just joking. I didn't know what I was doing. That wasn't me. I know it was me, but it wasn't me. I'm sorry for doing A, B, and C, but if you wouldn't have done X, Y, Z, then we wouldn't be here. I know that never happens in your marriage or any of your relationships. That's not repentance and confession. What it is, is I sinned against you by and get specific. I sinned against you by doing X. Please forgive me. I was wrong. There's no caveats to that statement, is there? That's hard. But that replicates and looks the same in your relationship with God. Because when you came to faith, you said, I'm a sinner. You didn't say, hey God, there's all this baggage in my life. Because my parents divorced when I was a kid in the church. Hey, um, there's all these questions that I have about you that I don't have answered. No, you came before a holy God and said, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me from my sins. In turn. That's what the scripture says. It says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so you see that mirrored not only at the cross and God making us right with himself and saving sinners, but it also ought to be mirrored in our lives. And the result is God's joy. Do you see it? God rejoices over the lost sinner. There's joy not only with God, but the angels of heaven rejoice. They rejoice when someone repents and turns to Christ. And so are we doing what makes God joyful? Are we sharing the message, the good news of Jesus with others that heaven might be rejoicing? You see, we're meant to see God's heart, right? For the lost. And I hope I've convinced us this morning that we are the lost. Whether we're the worst of these or the least of these or the best of these. God saves sinners. But I've sold you a little bit short. I'll just be honest. I've sold you short because there's three stories and you're going, hey, it's time. But I've sold you a little bit short because these two stories build. They build from the sheep to the coin to the son, the prodigal son. And they're meant to show us ever increasingly as you go through these stories, they're meant To show you loss, search, find, 
celebration. And there's no greater story in these three or maybe in the Bible that show you how the lost son who took all of his inheritance and went off and did his, went his own way like you and me. Who went his own way and yet turns, repents. Do you see it? You see it in the text if you look at it. He repents. He came to himself. He arose and went back to his father and said, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet the father runs to him in compassion and receives him. And says to the servants, kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. My son was gone, was lost, and now he's found. And don't forget the Pharisee that's in view of these parables. You see the older brother, right? At the very end of the parable, you see the older brother. Is he happy? He's like the Pharisee. He's grumbling. He's angry because he's been faithful. So your takeaway today is this. There's nobody that's too lost that God's sovereign grace can't find. There's nobody too lost that God's grace can't find. Whether you're the Pharisee, like the older brother, grumbling and complaining in the way that God is showing mercy toward the worst, least, or best of these. So whether you're like the Pharisee in need of real righteousness and repentance, or whether you are like the lost son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the tax collector, the sinner, God redeems He is in the business of redeeming. Is that the way that you see your God? Do you see God that way? Do you see God that way even in your sin, which you need to repent for and turn from? Do you see the heart of God for lost people? Do you see the heart of God even for you if you know Jesus and you're struggling in sin? Turn to him. Bend your knee to him. He's merciful. He's forgiving. He's gracious. Let me pray. (coughs) Father, we're grateful for your grace. The scripture says that you lavish upon us. You don't lavish it upon us because we're deserving. You, You lavish it upon us because you're kind and you're good. And you're merciful and you're forgiving. And Father, we know that in life, <coughs> there are real consequences for this, our sin. And so we don't want to minimize that. We want to acknowledge that we want to pursue you through your Spirit's work in our lives. And yet, when we do fall short, we know that we have a Savior who catches us, who loves us, that redeems us, who calls us his own. So help us. Receive that truth and believe that truth, but also extend that truth to others. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.